We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out bluewirepods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. I'm joined by my co-host Nick Delato. On today's show, we're going to tackle a recent report by Jay Glazer. In my opinion, the best insider in the business by far. And this report suggests that Dave Gettleman has been given a one-year ultimatum by ownership. Now, how might this impact the Giants from a roster management standpoint, both short and long-term? We're going to dive into all that. We're going to also recap that excellent interview with Jordan Reed on the from the Draft Network from our last podcast. And there's some key points that he made that we feel we both want to dive a little further in. Then lastly, we'll dive into some leftover mailbag questions that you guys have been wondering about. So let's get this thing going, Nick. And we're going to start with the Dave Gettleman report for Jay Glazer. So here's what it is, and then I'll ask your reaction to it. So the report from Jay Glazer. And remember, before we drop this report, I think it's important to note that Glazer is the most locked in, as far as I'm concerned, insider in the business, with the exception of Jason Lockenfora from CBS Sports. Glad to be remiss to not say that. He's breaking a lot of news all the time. But Glazer, as far as it comes to the Giants, has been locked in. He has great sources inside the Giants. This goes back to when Strahan played with the Giants. He's still very close friends with Strahan, and he has really good inside sources. Obviously, all those of you remember, he called the Odell Beckham trade before, way before it happened and before anyone even considered it had any chance of happening. He called that trade. And 
if you go back and listen to his his opinion of why that trade happened, it it shed some really interesting points you might not know about what was going on behind the scenes with Beckham. And you might want to check that out. Uh, you can find that on YouTube. I think it was an interview he did on Undisputed back around the time of the Beckham trade. I would definitely spend that, I think it's 11 to 15 minutes in that range, listening to what happened with Beckham, both on and off the field, in the locker room, on the sidelines, that kind of led to that trade. But now he has a new report out about the Giants, and here it is, Nick. So let's hear your thoughts on this. Jay Glazer claims that New York Giants general manager Dave Gettleman has one season to turn the franchise around or he'll be gone. Here's what was asked, or here's what he said, I'm sorry, when was when he was asked a question about Gettleman's future with the Giants and how close Gettleman was to actually retiring for this offseason. Glazer said, and I quote, I don't know if he'll end up retiring, but yeah, I think he was close this year. He made a case to ownership to come back. He presented a plan for how he'll how turn it around in one year. That needs to happen, Glazer said. If it doesn't happen, He'll be gone, and rightfully so. If he doesn't follow through, it's time to go. I would hope that Gettleman has also learned a bit about himself and his interaction with people during the process. Anytime you're on the hot seat, you have to look inside yourself and say, what's my responsibility in this, and make changes. So what do you make of this report, Nick? Because I think it's a pretty big one. I think it is too, man. And there's a lot of factors that really kind of goes along with this report. First off, is Gettleman going to be making the the decisions that us fans want him to make for the longevity of the New York Giants to better the New York Giants in the future. That was where my mind went first. Because if he's playing to just kind of extend his career, or is he going to retire? Is that like his plan if this doesn't work out? Just, you know, ceremoniously retire from the Giants? Or does he feel like he can still kind of do this despite the fact that he's pushing 70 right now? Right. I look at I look at this and it concerns me in the fact that he might be looking at that number four pick and just being like, what can we do right now to compete? And I think a lot of us Giants fans think and we feel and we're being objective. The Giants are not in that position. We need to kind of keep growing right now. This is still kind of this rebuild right now. So I look at the Leonard Williams case, the fact that he spent that pick on Leonard Williams, that third round pick to the Jets. The fact that Leonard Williams is kind of being a pain in the ass right now. We're not really sure what his long-term value is or this his long-term standing with this team is. I mean, he hasn't signed his tag yet, and he kind of has all the leverage on Gettleman that makes me just ask the question of, is this the right guy at the moment to kind of build this team the right way for the future of the Giants? Because he might just be looking for that immediate one-year fix because his ass is on the line, which we all expected. But the fact that Glazer's bringing this up holds weight for me because Glazer has been on top of everything with the Giants, as Dan articulated before. So I think that it's a very interesting thing to think about, and I really think it could impact that number four pick. What is he looking to do with that number four pick? Is he going to trade it back to get 2021 value if the right deal comes, if his ass is not in that seat, in that general manager seat? So there's a lot of things that kind of concern me with this report when it comes to Dave Gettleman. Yeah, I mean, Nick, you're spot on here. I think the most concerning thing for me would be his usage of future assets and his maximization of the current assets based on the idea that, A, he was close to retiring. But first of all, that scares the hell out of me anyway. Does that mean he's lost a step, by the way, from the Dave Gettleman that we had in Carolina when he was finding Taylor Modens in the second round? You know, and some it could have been, no, it could have been like, oh, I'm retiring, you know, I'm retiring just because it's ceremonious because my ass is going to get fired and I don't want to be embarrassed like yeah. that. Right. I mean, that's the, the least of my concerns. The bigger concern is, you know, like I said, maximizing the current assets they have and understanding the importance of 
this is not just a one-year plan to turn the New York Giants around. Now, when you read the report, that's kind of the scary part. He made a case to ownership to come back. This is from Glazer. He presented a plan for how he'll turn it around in one year. If you're making a plan for how you're going to turn it around in one year, you're going to go ahead and you're going to trade a third-round pick for, uh, you know, an early third-round pick, number 68 overall or whatever it is, for Leonard Williams because the chances of that third-round pick being a better player than Leonard Williams in 2020 are slim to none. You know, that's the back of the matter. Unless, unless you go wide receiver there, and then you might have a chance. But pretty much in any other position, even wide receiver, there's a very small chance that the pick they would have made would have been better than Leonard Williams in 2020. But as you mentioned, Leonard Williams hasn't signed his franchise tag. Leonard Williams is going to want a lot of money on a long-term contract. The player you would have drafted in that third round, the upside there, if you hit, is you have him for four straight years at $1.1 million against the cap. So really what this, what, what I start to circle back to, Nick, is is he making the, the best decisions for the franchise? And if this is the case, and he really is you know, gunning for this one year, he has this plan to turn around. It involved getting a boundary cornerback. It involved getting a middle linebacker who can actually play the run. And that because Ogletree really couldn't do that. And that's Blake Martinez. It involved getting the best player on his board at four. Does it involve that? That's my question to you, Nick. Will this spill over into the fourth pick? And will they look at it as he's like, will Gettleman look at it as I can't afford to trade back. I need to get a player who I know will be an immediate impact player from day one. And that best chance I have to do that is at number four overall. What do you think? definitely think that can impact the longevity especially when you look at these tackles in this class I think Wills is a you know plug and play you can play him right now but Becton Werfs and I don't want to really group Thomas into that but Becton and Werfs might take a little bit more time to develop to really maximize who they're really going to be and I guess that goes for everybody but them more so than Wills and Thomas at this moment so that really kind of affects I think Dave Gettleman's choice on if if he goes tackle, does he want to go tackle and kind of wait on that development? Will he go with Wills because he's a little bit safer? Granted, I would mind that because I liked everything Wills has shown on tape as a Jordan. So that's that's an excellent thing. But I don't know if I want that mindset, that person making these kind of decisions. I want the betterment for this team as we grow. I want the longevity. And we have Daniel Jones on this rookie contract for a few more years. You still have Saquon on this rookie contract. And... I don't feel like even though those things are kind of going for this year, 2020, I don't feel like the Giants are in a position this year to actually compete the Super Bowl. Now, looking at Dave Gettleman with that number four pick, if somebody comes up with this huge offer, this great offer, and it includes 2021 value, I don't know if that's going to entice him as much. That pisses me off. And I'm trying to look at this fourth overall pick, and I'm saying who has the immediate impact right now? Now, Isaiah Simmons, definitely. He could go three, and not a lot of people are talking about that. But there is a there is a realistic scenario where he goes three. Yeah, and then if, I look at if they don't trade that pick back, and for a team that wants to, and I, ultimately I think Miami and Detroit will swap those picks. I, but if they don't trade that pick back, I could definitely see the Lions going Simmons over Okuda. Yeah, oh, a hundred percent. And it does seem like because they traded Darius Slay, Okuda is that default pick. But that's what I mean, it seems. Second- but Simmons is a perfect fit for that Patricia defense. Oh, perfect fit. And that second level, I mean, Jared Davis has kind of been underwhelming for them. And they had the rookie linebacker that they drafted last year who played admirably. But just bringing in Simmons to your defense, it, it could upgrade so many different parts of your defense. That's we've said time and time again on this damn podcast. And then I look at Derek Brown, who's somebody who can really make an immediate impact. But I honestly, don't I do just do that to me, Nick. Don't do that. <laughs> I know, no. And you I'm get not. Pressure up on a Tuesday afternoon. And I love Derek Brown, but. 
if this thing goes south with Leonard Williams, is that a potential replacement? Granted, they are totally different players, but they're both players who can get pressure from the interior. I'm not sure if Gettleman will view it that way if this thing does go south, if he refuses to sign his tag. I think it's a conversation that needs to be bring, uh, brought up. And as much as Derek Brown is a stud, man, he is an absolute stud. I watched him against LSU. He dominated Damian Lewis, the guard from LSU. He dominated Lloyd Cushenberry. He is a really, really good I, I said it today in my mock draft, Nick, and, and with regards to Brown, he's going to be a guy who is going to go much higher than people think. He's going to be a guy who's going to be much more liked by NFL GMs than draft Twitter because he has the game tape to back up his case. And I totally get that. Obviously not for the Giants. I don't think they're in yeah. a position to draft Derek Brown, but, but for sure, I think that. And you know what's interesting about what you mentioned, Nick? I think the key point here is that you said, now don't even consider if this this will stop, you know, Gettleman from trading back at four and trying to pick up 2021 assets. What if it impacts who he takes at offensive tackle? What if he takes a different guy, a guy who he thinks can immediately be a, uh, you know, contribute at right tackle at the expense of the long-term health of the franchise? I don't think any of this will happen, by the way. Me and Nick are not sitting here telling you doomsday, you know, we're not telling you to prep for doomsday. This guy's going to totally destroy the Giants' plans just for the sake of him having the best possible 2020 to give himself the best possible chance 2021. More than likely what this report reads to me, Nick, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, but it's that, you know, he has a plan to get them better in 2020, or I'm sorry, in 2020, but it's it's a plan that will that will keep that'll give them a nice core, at least he hopes, based on his blueprint. Obviously, that involves, you know, stopping the run and running the football. Things that can be debated, their importance can be debated. We won't do that on this pod. But he wants to put them, you know, to have that nice core, that nice blueprint moving forward as well, in addition to having them turn it around for the 2020 season. Do you kind of see it that way? I mean, I do think his main focus right now is 2020. Sure. Now Yes, and he knows that his job is on the line. And I like the fact that you brought up it doesn't it's not a doomsday thing, but I do believe that main focus of Dave Gettleman will be on this year. And that you can take positives away from that. But at the same time, general manager is supposed to be the guy who kind of has the vision and the coach kind of implements the now. That's kind of the way like uh front office coaching dynamic is set up a lot of the times and I'm not saying that it's not in this case, but it definitely um, his his seat is really high and that might lend to just finding 2020 value more so than 2021. I think that's an argument that can be had and is uh, realistic. I don't necessarily think it's a doomsday like you were said before, though. Yeah, I don't want to lead us down that path with this. But yeah, it's definitely something interesting to think about. It's real. There's really been a massive change of guard. It appears with Giants ownership. You know, you go from an ownership that sat on on uh, George Young forever as their general manager, Ernie Corsi forever as their general manager, Jerry Reese through just constant years of terrible drafts, just miss after miss after miss in draft picks, including two top 10 picks, and he still kept the job. I mean, a lot of that, in my opinion, people will argue with me about this, in my opinion, a lot of that has to do with a few draft picks that hit, that hit. one that he inherited, Eli Manning, who kept them afloat and gave them minimum seven, eight wins every year, and then just some really good hits at defensive end with Tuck and JPP and things like that, But, but um, and obviously OCU Manure. But, you know, as far as that goes, they, they it, what we're seeing is a changing of the guard because now it seems like this new new wave of ownership decision-making is is fast. They want to make decisions. They got rid of McAdoo quick. They got rid of Reese. They got rid of Shermer quick. Now they're telling Dave Gettleman, you got one year, you got to do this, or you're out. You're, we're getting rid of you, too. So it's like 
they're starting to change a little bit in that approach. And that is a little scary to me, too. Not that I don't think you should fire bad general managers. They're doing a poor job. But when you start to turn this thing over and over again at head coach and general manager, you notice the teams that do that aren't the teams that are winning, Nick. And maybe you have to do it. Obviously, there are times you have to do it. They had to get rid of Shermer. They, they will have to get rid of Gettleman if this plan doesn't work. And me and you aren't huge on the stop the run, run the run the football, uh, you know, tenants. But when you start to turn it over a bunch, that starts to scare me. Does that scare you at all, Nick? Turnover, that's the uh, staple of teams like the Jets and the Browns. And no one wants to be grouped in with the Jets and the Browns. So I, that definitely yeah. concerns me. But at the same time, like you said, if the ship is being steered the wrong way, you kind of need to step in and rectify it. And you know what's interesting? You know, you talk about it's, it's so it's it's such like a double edged sword because you have this situation where, you know, it seemed, okay, so he gets this ultimatum, right? And you got to give him an ultimatum. You have to say to him, listen, if this thing doesn't get better, you've had three years to do it, Dave, and we can't continue to try this after three years. But when you also do that and you give him that ultimatum without extending their contract, you put yourselves in a position where the Lions are at now with Bob Quinn and, and uh, Matt Patricia there. They're entering year three of four-year deals, and they haven't been re-extended. So because of that, you're in that lame duck situation where you're going to focus more on 2020 and maybe at the risk of 2021, 2022, 2023. And then when you start to make those decisions, that's when you start to worry about even more than, you know, the decision to, to focus on stopping the run and running the football. You start to worry about, uh-oh, is this franchise going to make poor decisions overall based on focusing too much on the now and not enough on the long term? Yeah, that and you also got to remember a lot of good teams and we saw we've seen the giants do this in the past they'll draft for future need because they're like okay i'm not sure if we're going to re-sign x player to a contract say the x player is a safety so why don't we go out and draft his replacement now and then the safety the next year comes into his contract year and then you can let him go and you already have a replacement in-house now we'll get him and do that for the people who might be departing in 2021 2022 that's another question that can also happen yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's another big thing you got to think about. This. There's a lot to consider here. I think overall, Nick, I, I'm giving this report 100% validity. I think Jay Glazer has proven himself. He's even made it clear, you know, multiple times. I don't report things unless I've confirmed it with multiple sources and I know them to be true. And his track record with the Giants, is, uh, I'm reporting on the Giants is spotless. So this is something to consider. And it's something to, it's definitely something to think about as we move forward. Uh, with the plan you look back at free agency this year with some of the signings and then with what they do eventually in the 2020 nfl draft all right nick before we dive into some questions from the listeners that were left over in the mailbags from previous weeks or just for questions that were for reed that now we'll tackle let's dive a little bit into some of the key talking points that jordan reed uh went over on the on, on our podcast interview with him let's start with jordan reed's blueprint for the giants Nick, he has no trade backs. He has them sitting at four and taking Isaiah Simmons, then sitting at number 36 and taking offensive tackle Louis Yang at a TCU. And then at 99, he has Terrell Burgess at a Utah, the safety who we like and he likes even more. What are your thoughts on this blueprint? Let's start with the fourth overall pick. Yeah, the fourth overall pick. If you're going to sit there at four, Isaiah Simmons is going to be the option. If you're not going to trade back, I would absolutely love for the Giants to secure Simmons. He's definitely a player that you do not want to try to rely on him being available if you do trade back. Yeah, Nick, and think about this. What we just talked about before with Dave Gettleman, if he's playing for now, right, if he's focused on the short term, who gives him a better chance 
who gives the Giants a better chance? But listen, if they want to be the best team they can be for twenty, uh, for I'm sorry, for twenty twenty, yeah, you might be able to do it with a right tackle. Obviously, that's the biggest need. But think of how slow it takes these tackles to transition to elite players at the NFL level. There's going to be five, six, seven, eight, maybe more games of bad tape where these guys are making mistakes. But guess who's not? Guess who's going to make an immediate impact on passing key passing downs? That's Isaiah Simmons. He's immediately there. I don't see any time to take for him. As long as Patrick Graham has his head straight, I think he's going to do it right away. So would that factor in maybe for you, Nick? Oh, that would factor in 100%. And kind of like what Jordan said, and I like the fact that he brought this up, you kind of need to have a plan for Isaiah Simmons. But I feel, I think Patrick Graham, all the tape I've watched on him with the Dolphins, all the things you hear about his time with the Packers and how he was the smartest coach there. And obviously he has Bill Belichick connections. He's going to have a plan for a guy like Isaiah Simmons if they invest a fourth overall pick in him. I mean, I'm not worried about that whatsoever. And you can do whatever you want with this player. You can literally blitz him off the edge. He can be a boundary corner. He can play nickel. And he can play deep safety. He's done all of these things at a high level for a champion caliber team in college he literally would answer a lot of questions for the defense now then you just got to look at the opportunity cost of drafting a linebacker there you're probably going to miss out on those top you have to understand with that nick you're not drafting a linebacker i think this is and i'm not saying you think this but i think this is something that some people get get lost in the mix with simmons he's you're not essentially drafting linebacker you're drafting a defensive player i look at him as that he's 6'4 238 Ran a 4.39 at 238 pounds with a 39-inch vertical and a 132-inch broad jump. These are ridiculous athletic numbers. These are not linebacker numbers. These are safety numbers. But he also has the production of a linebacker. 107 tackles, 8 sacks, 3 interceptions, 10 passes defense. You watch the tape and you see him just bullying running backs and pass protection as a blitzer. So I think it's important to note with Simmons that I don't want to box him into linebacker. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, 100%. I wasn't trying to do that, and I know you know that. But my my point is, if you take anybody that's not an offensive tackle, that means in round two you need to come back and really maximize that pick. And I feel like Lucas Nyang does that, and I'm imagining you agree too. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by Nyang because I don't know as much about him as I probably should, and I think that's someone who we should probably dive into more. I'm not sure what you've done in that regard. I know what Jordan said was really interesting to me. That's what stood out the most. He was somebody— who on tw- and when he watched him in 2018 on his game tape, he was dominant. He talked about the Ohio State game where he shut down both Chase Young and Nick Bosa, no matter who was lined up on the on, on the on the side against him. And then in 2019, his play fell off a little bit, and that's because he was injured. He played through injuries. This is where I see so much value. I love getting players who are coming off an injury, and that's why their draft stock is lower. Does that kind of make sense to you, Nick? Makes 100% sense. So I've watched two games of Lucas Nyang's. One was against Texas in 2019, and I did watch his Oklahoma game in 2019. And one of his big knocks is the fact that he false steps sometimes, which is a big, which is a concern for offensive tackles, especially if you let it be a consistent part of your game and you just rely on size or athletic ability to overcompensate that. That's not what Yang did. And he did it in that game against Texas, but the two reps that he did it on were the two reps right before he exited the game because he had a hip issue which required surgery and he missed the rest of the season afterwards. So I went and I watched his 2018 game and he just he 
earns the inside chest plate of defensive lineman with strong hands he has good feet he's quick he can move in space he has flexibility quick feet up the arc mirroring ability good positioning in the run game not overly strong at the uh point of attack not like a uh, makai beckton but he has enough functional strength to win and seal the edge has the hips to kind of seal the edge and power gap scheme and stuff like that so and that's something the Giants are probably going to incorporate more with Jason Garrett as their offensive coordinator. So I saw those positive things. And then in 2018, he was dealing with a hip issue, and then he eventually left for the rest of the season. So this is one of those players that you might, if that hip issue, which is supposedly cleared up now, it's one of those players that not a lot of people are talking about. But if the Giants don't go tackle one of those top four tackles, he's there at 36. That could be a really interesting player that can really help your offensive line. Yeah, I love it, Nick. And I think there's the, the offensive tackle they take whoever it's going to be, is going to be someone who, you know, specifically it's a Dave Gettleman guy. We know that. He's had his guys in the past. He loved Taylor Moden to the point where he traded up when he was with the Panthers as their general manager to get Moden in the second round. And that's been a slam dunk pick for them. Slam dunk pick. He should have been a first round pick. He did the same thing, I believe, with the trade up for Trey Turner, but he might have not. It might have just been he sat in the middle of that third round and took Trey Turner. And then obviously Darrell Williams, probably his best value pick ever, even though obviously his career has kind of been derailed by injuries. But Darrell Williams is a fourth round pick. So I'm not so sold that he's gung-ho that he needs a tackle but I do know that when he does take his tackle it's going to be a guy he likes and Yang could easily be that guy there's just so much upside with Yang and really if you take away if you factor in the fact that he's playing through injuries in 2019 that just gives that in my mind that just proves so much more upside it's like think about fantasy football I love taking the guys who are coming off the injured seasons or who are coming off a season where they were slowed in training camp or whatever reason, you know, they, they are coming, they were one year removed from the ACL. Now they're two years removed from the ACL. Those are the guys I love targeting in fantasy because they always provide more value because they're coming at a discount. And I think the same can be said about the NFL draft class, especially, especially Nick this year, where we don't have the private workouts and we don't have the pro days and things like that, where these guys might slip just simply because of a lack of information. And that provides an opportunity for the Giants or really any team to really strike. All right, Nick, what about your thoughts on his third round pick, Ter- Terrell Burgess, the safety out of Utah? Yeah, so I haven't studied Burgess's tape, but I've watched them Utah football, and I've seen him make plays, high-pointing interceptions, and he seems to have the range and foot speed and those kind of athletic traits you look for to play single high. And I can't sit here and and uh, lie to you guys and say I know his exact role in the Utah defense, but just those little traits that I was able to glean just from seeing some of his film. I think I watched some of his teammate Julian Blackman and some of the other Utah players. He seemed to kind of jump out. I was like, oh, man, who is that a— uh, who is that number 26 out there? It's pretty good, a uh, pretty good player, but I definitely need to watch more film on him. But I'm hearing a lot of positive things from people I respect in the industry, people like Jordan Reed. So that's something that I'm looking forward to getting my hands on some Utah tape somehow and kind of grinding through his film to see if he could be a potential fit for the New York Giants in that deep safety position. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about it. And basing it off of what Reed said, Reed said he played a variety of roles in that Utah defense. You know, I was looking a little bit more into it after our interview. He didn't play single high as much as some of the other prospects I liked because they played more single high. Like Ashton Davis out of Cal is one of my favorites for the, for the late third round. He's slipping now big time on draft boards because he didn't get a chance to compete in the combine because there's no pro days and, 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 and private visits because of what's going on in the world right now. So I think just based on the fact that Davis has more snaps there, I'm kind of still leaning towards there. Davis though, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Dan, he's somebody who's relatively new to football, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that almost intrigues me even more about him. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the, the development curves there. 
But back to Burgess, there were snaps from what I've seen where he did play in those single high looks. Now, as, as Reed broke down, it's actually awesome that he has played in a variety of roles. The overhang, he played strong safety, he played in a box. Like, that's a good thing. You want players with versatility at safety and at linebacker so you can use them in a variety of roles in nickel and sub-package defenses and to help you on those key passing downs. Again, the NFL, to me, is all about winning those key passing downs, and it's all about having the best possible nickel defense you can have. And what really intrigues me about him is while there wasn't as much tape uh, in, uh, of him in single high looks, and there wasn't many, as many snaps of him in single high looks as someone like Davis, for example, he did, play, he did perform well when he was in his looks, and he ran a 4.46 at 205, or 202 pounds, which was, I'm pretty sure it was the fifth fastest safety t- 40 time among all safeties, strong and free safeties in the entire draft class. That says something to me. That says it, and and you watch him, and he has the instincts. And so, if he has the range, and he combines it with the instincts, he might be a player who you know could be could be just somebody who took a little bit longer to get going. I mean, he really didn't play much. He played in all in forty five games at, at Utah, but he he only started. He only got really a chance to start his senior season when he started all fourteen games. Yeah, no, I got the numbers in front of me, too. He played free safety 133 snaps this past season, but he was slot corner 273, and then he was in the box like as a robber dropping down on linebacker nickel situation, something we've seen a lot from James Betcher's defense. I'm sure we're going to see in Patrick Graham's defense with Jabril Peppers 284 times. So he is very versatile, like Jordan said, and that's something that the Giants can implement, and then you can really just teach him what you want him to do, and then he can refine that and build upon that. You get him at pick 99 or maybe 110, and that's good value. Yeah, yep. And so for me, I'm going to give it an overall grade. I'm giving Jordan's draft an A- because I love it. I mean, I'm not going to give it a full A+. I'd love to get Bond potentially, and I'd love to maybe get somebody else at nine or a center maybe somewhere in there. Though I do think there might be some value at center, by the way, in on day three at the beginning of the – when the Giants have that early round four pick. But for me, this is as close to a slam dunk as they can get here. What, what, what would you say? No, yeah, no, I, I uh, definitely, I agree. If they're not going to go tackle in that top part, getting Simmons, getting a difference maker, getting someone who can change this defense's identity and be the face of the defense, landing Yang, someone who could be a potential left tackle replacement for Solder, and then getting that deep half safety that we've been bitching about since midseason. So I would actually really uh, love that. But I wanted to ask you, Dan, since you brought up center, um, Jordan brought up Tyler Biotish a little bit uh, as a potential center fit for the Giants. Uh, do you think he's being slept on? How, how do you feel about that? I really do, Nick. I think it's really interesting with Biotish. He's another example of a player who's being discounted because he played hurt in 2019. When you go back and look at his 2018 tape and you look at the, the response to his 2018 tape before this draft, before this start of the 2019 season, he was pretty much the OC1 hands down in every analyst board. He was somebody who people thought would rise all the way to the first round, like Travis Frederick before him, obviously Travis Frederick, another interior lineman, a center who came from Wisconsin, the same school. They've just churned out offensive linemen who have translated to the NFL. Yeah, they had Gabe Karimi who missed, but besides Karimi, they have just hit, hit, hit on the offensive line. And if he's being discounted for that 2019 season, where obviously the tape wasn't as good while he's playing through injury— he provides, just like we said with Yang, a potential massive steal. And I think there's honestly a chance at this point Biotis could fall all the way to 99, or he could fall into the 60 to 70 range where the Giants could maybe trade up from 99 to get him. And so a guy who maybe at one point we would think they would have to take at 36 overall and who might honestly be one of the best 36 players in this draft, 
maybe somebody you can get a lot later. So Biotis is probably the center who I'm most intrigued by from a value standpoint. I obviously like Hennessy a lot. We've talked about him. And, you know, one of the big sleepers that you talked about early on the podcast, Ishmael from San Diego State, I, I like him a little bit. But if I'm talking about value right now, I think Biotis presents the potential best value at that position. A hundred percent. I love the fact that you brought up a uh, fantasy football and I love that Jordan was talking about analogies on the podcast. You bring up fantasy football and this is just like you were talking about when Yang, you're looking for somebody who's injured to get in like the fourth, fifth round. And hopefully they're looking for a breakout year. Biotis is one of those players right now at the interior offensive line playing center for Wisconsin. Again, Jordan talked about how Wisconsin offensive linemen always ball out. You just mentioned it, and he legit has a chance to do that, and you can probably maybe even get him because he slid down boards because of those injury concerns and the bad tape, but he's had good tape in 2018. He's put it out there, so he is capable of playing at a high level. And if I'm not mistaken, you watch much more Wisconsin than me, Dan. It was just pass pass protection this time. He just found himself on the ground a little bit too much, right? Exactly. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's stuff that is somewhat it's correctable, especially because he's put that tape out there where he can correct it. He's obviously a smart player playing at Wisconsin. So I think if you get him at 99 and you sure up the tackle or edge or deep safety, whatever you do in those first two rounds, man, you could literally be getting a huge steal on a player who last year was top 25 for a lot of people. Yep. Without a doubt. Another interesting player who Jordan mentioned that I wanted to touch on from from the podcast interview with him was a player who we talked about, Zeninga from Florida, the edge. Um, obviously somebody we talked a lot about after the combine when we really liked what he showed at the combine for a guy that of his size. Uh, are you still as high on him as you were then now you've had a chance to look more into him? Do you think there's the chance to get him at 99, or would they probably have to trade up a little higher in round three? I'm actually a bigger fan of his teammate, Jonathan Grenard, and I know his— yeah, his combine wasn't as uh, uh, flashy, I would say. But when I turned the film on, I feel like Grenard, who was a transfer from Louisville uh, the year before, so he only had one year down there in Gainesville, he had a better tape to me. I thought he was a little bit stronger at yep. the point of attack. And Zuniga, I watched I watched a good amount of Zuniga's film, and he, he didn't necessarily flash athletically. Like, I didn't see the bend or the flexibility that he showed at the combine, but... I, he is somebody who I think could be a realistic target for the Giants with that early fourth round pick or possibly with a mm-hmm. compensatory pick at 99 because the Giants do need edge help. I do feel like he can add an element to the team, but I wish he played to that athleticism. I just didn't see that necessarily in the film. Maybe I got to watch more. You know, maybe mm-hmm. I should watch more. But from what I saw, I didn't see him play to that, the uh, elite it's, athletic numbers he put up. I think it's interesting, Nick, when it comes to, the, uh, you know, what you see on film versus how we can project these guys going forward because obviously – you know, the biggest question for me then would be, was was his production, what you saw on film, et cetera, et cetera, lack of production, more of an issue of him being miscast and misfit in the system, i.e. a Darius Slayton from a year ago who the Giants spotted as somebody who they loved on tape, somebody who they didn't like playing in that Auburn system, somebody who they thought would be much better in the offense system they wanted to play. Um, and is that something you could see potentially with Zynga? That's, I think, the question you got to ask yourself. Because when you're looking at these mid-round picks, the upside there is to get a guy like Slayton, to get a guy like Zyninga, who can – it's not really, in my opinion, to get a guy like Anai or something, like Ern Uche from Ad- – you know, and I'm not saying I've really dove into Uche or Anai's game film. Those are two edge guys. But those guys, to me, are kind of in the more maxed-out range. Those guys don't have the athletic traits that I look for. And, yeah, they have awesome production at the collegiate level – but I'm not really looking for that. That's not how I would draft at least uh, in the, in. I'm talking about in the middle rounds, by the way, of course, because in the in the early rounds you need production. If you're if you're just drafting athletic guys without production, you're screwing it up. But again, I, I just wonder if that should be factored in there, Nick. 
Oh, definitely should be. And it could have been. He could have been miscast. I mean, his uh his I think it was his redshirt sophomore season, 2018, he had a much better year statistically. He had eleven tackles for a loss. I'm not I don't remember the the sacks off the top of my head right now. But then this past year, I think he had five and a half tackles for a loss and like three sacks, and it was just a significant step back statistically. But yeah, it could definitely be a miscast thing. I mean, these guys mesh with different coaches. They mesh with different systems. So that's definitely something that um should be weighed in with his evaluation. Sure. And I think the last thing I want to touch on before we dive into some questions from the listeners is how Jordan Reed viewed the big four offensive tackle class. And Reed came in with Jared, same, same OT1 as you have, Nick. And, you know, honestly, since I've – after our last podcast when you broke it down and you had him as OT1 – I basically have consumed like somewhere between two and three hours of, I, I don't have game film, but I do have breakdowns from people like you and Jordan in the industry that of, of this offensive tackle class that I watched and I studied. And I've pretty much come to the conclusion that Wills is the safest pick. He's probably OT1 for that reason. Now, I went into this process thinking Worfs was the safest pick, and I've completely flipped that regard. I think Worfs is a more risky pick with a lot more upside. Yeah, Wills, uh, the thing about Wills, is safe sometimes gives a negative connotation. I know you don't mean it this way, but I want Giants fans to know that it's not negative when it comes to Wills. It's just that he's more polished at the moment right now, and he's going to be a good NFL player, and he could step in and be a good NFL player right now. And when you weigh upside, you may want to look at the other guys. Like They may have more upside because they're not as polished, but I don't want safe to be a necessarily a negative connotation with him. Yeah, it shouldn't be. And I think it, it, there's a different way to interpret this. Like some people would say Andrew Thomas is the safest tackle. To me, he's not because, I, again, these are some of my concerns with him. I think that he was hidden a little bit by that play action run heavy scheme. And I think that when you look at some of the key metrics that he did, the, the key testing drills he did so poorly with at the combine, you look at the short, the short shuttle and three cone, those type of drills, the agility drills, and you look at the offensive tackles who have tested in his range. And you just don't see that many that have actually translated to the NFL. That's where I start to get concerned, and I don't consider him as safe of a prospect. Now, versus a works where I used to think, oh, he's the safest prospect in the class, I've kind of flipped that. And I think now he's kind of the, the highest – well, not the highest upside. That's got to be Beckton. But he, yeah. but worse is probably the second highest upside tackle in this class because a lot of what we don't like about worse is what we see on film. And the Giants could be one of those teams, Nick, that looks at the film and says, yeah, Wirfs is has issues in his past sets. He he has horizontal pass sets. He gets mixed up a lot. Yeah, I've seen him get mixed up multiple times with simple stunts. But these, if they think that you know, these are all things that can be fixed pretty soon with coaching. It's not like an Eric Flowers situation with Worfs, where he's just not punching with his hands and he's just completely off balance with his feet. It's more for me. The issue is he's just not his his pass sets stink, and I think they need a lot of improvement. And I think he needs to use a vertical pass set, and I think that he just gets a little confused sometimes by stunts and, and off balance in that regard. Yeah, and the power at the point of attack is something that I feel like a lot, a lot of people are bringing up. And he's not somebody who gets bullied back, but he will get pushed back. And you'll see both his feet leave the ground and kind of yeah. then he'll like anchor down. He'll still get pushed. It's just not as clean as the other big guys. And not a lot of people are really talking about it. And I don't mean to come off like I'm shitting on worse. I just do think these are realistic concerns that people are overlooking because his combine was so extravagant. And the fact that he moves so well in space, which he does. And like you say, Dan, I would love to see him out there with Saquon. On Barkley, but uh, it's just those concerns are are something that we need to address, and they need to have a plan to coach up if they do take him. Yeah, and, I, and I'll say and I'll say this with, with regards to what Jordan said, and we did ask him this question, and this is kind of where I'm sitting at now with it, Nick. If the Giants are going to stay at four and not trade back, and if they are going to take an offensive tackle, so if all those things are true, 
The only one I want them to take is Jedrick Wills. Is Wills is the only one that I'd be comfortable taking. I and I'd be fine. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. He's the one I want the most. I'd also be fine taking Worse if they just feel so confident that their coaching can turn this thing around with Worse fast. But Becton, I would want to trade back to get Thomas. I would definitely want to trade back to get. Do you see that any differently? Um. See, I don't. I agree with what you're saying on the whole because Wills is the one that I would be, and I could see the upside of Worse. I the, my main thing about Gettleman, I feel like he's neglected to do this in the past. Is he doesn't necessarily go out and look for all the options. I think he's a little bit stubborn with that. I would much if Isaiah Simmons on the board and they take Becton or if they take Thomas, I'm gonna probably be a little bit sour. But I'm like, okay, at least we have a tackle that Mark Colombo, who I do trust, not Hell Hunter, can develop, and that's something that will kind of give me a warm and fuzzy. So I don't want to say I'd be so pissed, but definitely would be uh, happier if they come away with Wills or Worfs in that situation. Not to hedge on the question, but yeah. And speaking of what you just said with the Giants and Gettleman not always considering all options, this kind of bounces back and piggies back off of what Jordan said in the podcast about the one player he's changed his mind on the most since the start of this process until now is Justin Herbert, the quarterback, and who he's talked with some scouts about and some inside personnel that all say, you know, he was basically a square pet, or I'm sorry, I, I'm totally going to botch this analogy, a square pet trying to fit a, what is this? What is the square, square peg in a round hole? <laughs> square peg in a round hole. And I completely agree with that. I hated that offensive system for him at Oregon. I thought it made no sense. He should be in a vertically attacking offensive system. And everything was just screens and horizontal crap. And, you know, if you put him in an offense like the Bills have run with Josh Allen, and I, and I said this to Jordan on the pod, and I really feel this way, he could be really good right away. So I'm not convinced that teams won't be looking, even if, let's say, somebody trades up to two to take Tua and and Detroit moves back. I don't think there's it's a guarantee that that's it for quarterbacks. I think at four, Gettleman really needs to pound the table and consider all options for Herbert. I think teams will be looking to trade up and secure Justin Herbert. I don't feel that way about Jordan Love. I've seen the Mahomes comparisons. I don't get it at all. He does not have anywhere near the arm talent of Mahomes. Obviously, like there's some comparison to Mahomes just based on how they move and the arm angles they throw from and things like that. But like, no, that's not Mahomes' arm talent level. But Herbert is a guy who I really think could have just been legitimately miscast in that Oregon system, a really bad fit for his skill set, and teams might see that, teams might love that, and teams might be willing to trade up to four. So I really think you made a great point there. Yeah, and uh, my one concern would be, what if a team in the 20s wants to trade up and they're willing to give a huge haul for it? Would Gettleman really want to entertain that? It doesn't seem like... By the comments that he's made in the past, he doesn't want to trade back too far, but he'd entertain it if it's like the Panthers or somebody like that. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. With regards to his comments in the past and with regards to the report from Jay Glazer, I don't think the Giants are trading back any further than the top 10. I'd be stunned if they trade back outside the top 10. You know what, Nick? I don't hate that. I want one of these blue chip guys. I want Simmons or one of these tackles. So I don't care. If they somehow kept trading back, trading back, trading back, and didn't land any of those five players— I, I'd be pretty disappointed in this draft. Yeah, yeah, unless it was literally like something you just could not, could not let go. But for sure, I mean, look, listen, the only time we've seen that, by the way, is when the Falcons traded up for Julio Jones of the Cleveland Browns and went from like twenty something to four there and got Julio. And what did the Browns do with that draft haul? Nothing. They were they they missed. And I'm not saying that would be the case for the Giants. You got to hope that Gettleman does a better job there. 
But, you know, I think the Browns took a center with one of those picks. I think they took Brandon Whedon with one of those picks. And these were first round, multiple first round picks. So I think you got to I think he is right in some sense that you don't want to go too far back. You want to still land a blue chip. I agree. But what about how far was the trade for RG3? I'm trying to remember how far back uh, did uh, I think that was late. Yeah, I think that was they got picks in later years that one um but how far did the rams drop back i don't remember completely where where they where uh washington moved up to get rg3 yeah neither do i exactly i don't i don't believe it was because like, uh the titans uh they traded back to like 15 with the rams to get jared golf right yeah, that yeah. was i want to say it was like mid first round so that was a little bit more recent but yeah it's definitely interesting man uh i'm looking uh, i'm looking forward to seeing how this draft pans out i hope uh the giants are doing things like we said man for the longevity of this team but Hopefully they can get a blue chip guy here because you're picking in the top five, man. All right. Before we dive into some questions from the listeners, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there is nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack all open 24 hours a day and all online, which is awesome, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, American Idol, Big Brother, stock prices, and even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, Bet Online, your online wagering experts. Promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. All right, Nick, let's dive into some of the questions, and we'll go back and forth with these that we didn't get a chance to get to with Jordan Reed, but we feel like we want to dive into ourselves. So Dan the Movie asks, how do you rank the center prospects that might be available to the Giants after round one? So are we considering Ruiz and Cushenberry yeah. as okay, so Ruiz and Cushenberry I think they're gonna be taken in round one with how deep this class is at other positions. I just don't see either going round one. See, I can see them actually going round one, to be honest. I think it's interesting because there's like I've said several times on this podcast, there's like 80 first round picks, it seems like what yeah. people think where people are gonna go. So but you got Cushenberry and Ruiz at the top. Now, I feel Ruiz is a better fit for the New York Giants who are wanting to implement more gap uh, power kind of schemes. I think he's a little bit more stronger at the point of attack, can kind of get a little bit more leg drive at the at the point of attack, uses his hands relatively well. And I watched a game where it was a, it was a struggle. The, the game I evaluated was against Wisconsin, and Wisconsin was all over them. And Zach Bowen is just an absolute maniac. I got to praise you for keep bringing him up on this podcast, man. But he's a maniac. But that's the game that I really That was watched. the best game in his career, Bond. Oh, it, was, it was ridiculous. But Ruiz versus Cushenberry. I love Cushenberry's athleticism. I love his movement ability. I love his hips. But I don't feel like he generates a lot of power at the point of attack. I feel like he's a little bit more of a catcher, and he'll try to stand defensive linemen up, but he doesn't really drive too many guys off the line of scrimmage. Now, I've seen reps of Cushenberry that were really good, but and I do love the player, and I think he'd fit great into an inside zone kind of scheme because he can really use that hip flexibility and that hip uh, mobility to kind of turn guys out of gaps. But... I think Ruiz might be a better fit for the Giants when it comes to just his ability to drive people on the ball uh, in the run game, and he's still solid against the pass. I know he's kind of had a couple games where he's found his ass on the ground a lot, and I want to dive into that film. I have not seen that quite yet, but that's kind of what I take away from the Ruiz versus Cushenberry argument. I think you can go either way. It depends on your team fit. I mean, it's interesting, Nick, because we're going to have a different opinion, and I, and I think it's going to stay that way with regards to Ruiz. 
Uh, from what I've gathered and from what I've seen and from what I've read, I think he's more the opposite. I think he's a sure thing in pass protection. He's more, and he's not this type of center that I'm personally looking for, Ruiz. Um, now, the numbers back it up from pro football focus that he was much better in pass pro than run blocking, but I don't even base it just on that. It's just from what I've seen in some of the breakdowns. So I'm not as high as Ruiz as others. For me, there's really just two centers I like the most from a value standpoint in this class that I would take, and it's it's Biotish and it's Hennessy. And I don't know exactly where to get either one, Nick, but for me, that's it's hard for me to rank these centers. Like, sure, you maybe you can put Ruiz ahead of them. And like you said, Cushenberry could be ahead of them, but he's better fit for an inside zone. But just to me, I don't like the fit with either Ruiz or Cush really on the Giants, assuming that you'd have to take either one at 36. Yeah, that that brings up Hennessy. Now, I haven't been able to watch a lot of film on Hennessy. Tenthville film's kind of hard to come by, but a lot of people are talking about him. I hear things in the industry of people that really like him, and the guards in this class aren't necessarily strong, and I wonder if that's going to put value of center up a little bit because some of these guys, some of these guards can play both center and guard in the NFL here in the draft, not as much. At least we haven't seen it as much, but Hennessy, I'm not sure. He might be a pick 36 kind of guy. I do think Cushion... Cush or Ruiz might go in the first round here. Center is a kind of a high demand position around the league. Yeah, teams like the Cowboys, who I don't think are going to go center, but they did just lose Travis Frederick, and that's just an option. They might still go with someone like Xavier McKinney, but uh, those are the those are the big four centers, I would say. And then I'm trying to think of uh, who who else would kind of slide in there as as centers that we would uh, even entertain maybe a little bit later in the draft. But after Beatis. There's a couple guards, guys like Jonah Jackson and Robert Hunt, but I haven't seen much uh, Louisiana Lafayette film for Robert Hunt. Nick Harris is a center. He's more of a pass blocking. People uh, that love Nick Harris, but yeah, he's just a pat. I don't love the pass blocking types right now. Yeah, yeah, that, I mean, it's and, interesting. And they need strength. They need play and, and like you said, they could. These guys could go in the first round, Ruiz, whatnot. But to me, they're not the Frank Ragno from a couple drafts ago. Ragnow, you knew when he came in, he was a beast at the point of attack. He was the exact type of center I want the Giants to have on this football team, a Ragnar type. And honestly, I see that a little bit in Beatis, especially if you watch Beatis from 2018. So to me, I'm really starting to zone in focus on him, especially with the injury discount you're going to get there. So I I just want a Ragnar type. I want somebody who's going to be a beast at the point of attack. Yeah, no, I I agree with you with that. I think that's a very honest take. I kind of want to ask you a question from our friend Nemesis, Dan. All right. So Nemesis, my guy, he asks, Day three picks. Who are the best day three wide receivers to target? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Nemesis, because there are so, so many wide receivers I like projected to go in day three. I'm going to start with the guys who I don't think will last the day three, but if they do, I freaking love them. Michael Pittman Jr. out of USC, six foot four, 220, ran a four five flat, and you watch him on tape, and he looks like wide receiver one potential. I don't understand why he's ranked so low on some draft boards. I think he's unbelievable. I'm going to flip over to another guy who I don't think will last to day three, but maybe based on his size, and that's KJ Hamler out of Penn State, 5'9, 176, but lightning quick, lightning fast, really reminds me of Tariq Hill Light. And that is something I'm super excited about. Now, let me dive into some players who I think will be there on day three. Let me start with Van Jefferson out of Florida. I think the reason he might be there on day three is because he didn't have a chance to go in the combine. He's had the injury issues. There's all those potential question marks that might make him fall in a class this deep. But Van Jefferson, 6'2", 200 pounds, may be the best route runner in this entire draft class. And what am I looking for at wide receiver? What stands out to me? Two things. Ability to create separation and 
the ability to make contestant catches and hands. These are the things I think are most underrated. But when you look at the best receivers in the NFL, Brown, Beckham uh, during his prime, Diggs, players like that, they separate early and often. They have great hands. They never drop. They may have dropped passes because of last concentration. They have great hands, and they're really good at contested catch situations. Um, and so those are two guys that really stand out to me. Obviously, I'm not going to miss a single podcast without mentioning Quintez Cephas out of Wisconsin, who's just falling in draft boards after a horrible 40 time at the combine. Made up for a little at his pro day. I don't think any of that matters. Put on the game tape of Cephas. He might be one of the best contested catch players in this draft class. He's super strong in the line of scrimmage, creates separation early in office. I think Cephas is one of the best uh, values in this entire draft class at any position. And that also goes for me for Tyler Johnson in Minnesota. A lot of Big Ten guys for me. Maybe that's a little bi- my, of my bias because, you know, I've gone ahead and I've watched a ton of Big Ten. But Tyler Johnson to me is so smooth. He reminds me a lot of Tyler Boyd, who also fell in his draft class because, you know, not a great 40 time, doesn't flash, but just finds a way to get open early and often. And if you want to dig even deeper down the draft class, Gabriel Davis out of USC could be a nice fit, 6'3", 215 for a Jason Garrett offense. And if we're digging even deeper, James Proach out of SMU, not as big of a wide receiver, but I watched a lot of SMU weirdly because I bet on SMU a lot. They're one of my favorite teams to bet on and win on. And Proach is the guy who stood out to me in every single one of those games. I think he is a ball player for sure. And so those are probably my day three guys I'm targeting and the guys I like the most approach Cephas, uh, Tyler Johnson, Gabriel Davis out of UCF, potentially if he lasts, potentially, um, KJ Hamler out of Penn State. And then one final guy who I don't think will last, but I'll mention him anyway, Donovan Peoples-Jones out of Michigan. I know people are kind of torn on Peoples-Jones, but to me, he's a classic, classic case of crappy offensive system, crappy quarterback play. Who's the last person we saw thrive from that? Darius Slayton. So I'm not saying he's going to be Darius Slayton, but he is extremely explosive, unbelievable combine vertical, unbelievable combine broad jump solid 40 time for his size. And I just think he's one of those guys that really was held back by quarterback play and Michigan's offensive system. And I think he's somebody who could really thrive at the next level. Love those calls, man. I love the Tyler Johnson one. I like a lot of you who's been listening to this podcast. I used to write for the golden Gophers. So I had to watch all 2018 Minnesota film, something I wasn't really used to doing, especially because I was coaching at that time. But Tyler Johnson routinely made plays and just showed excellent concentration, body control, ball tracking, and all these things that are kind of hard to coach up. And he kind of has that now he's a good athlete, but he's not an, he's not an excellent athlete. So he doesn't really jump off the page like that. But I think he's one of those big 10 Guys who are going to fall to maybe day three and someone's getting an absolute steal, someone who can run routes and do all those little nuanced things that receivers do that make them excel. So I do love that call. But when we're talking about the Giants, the Giants are looking for those X-type receivers, those bigger body receivers, boundary receivers. I think Antonio Gandy-Golden at a Liberty is somebody. He's like six foot four to almost 225 pounds, has good speed, good ball skills, uses this huge catch radius to not allow defensive backs to kind of disrupt his catch point. So he's really strong, strong hands. And he went down to the senior bowl and played really well down there liberty's a smaller school they just got bumped up to division one i want to say like two or three years ago and they brought in hugh freeze so they're kind of on the up and up as a program so he's somebody who's really interesting i think devin duvernay uh kid from texas built like a rock as jordan reed mentioned him he's more of a slot guy so he's somebody that the Giants might not be looking at, but he's somebody in day three that could really kind of come onto a team and play really well. You brought up a lot of these other guys like James Prochet. I think Isaiah Coulter, the kid from Rhode Island, a good route runner, solid athlete, somebody that a lot of people aren't necessarily talking about. But I listened to 
some people I respect in the draft community that kind of bring up his name as somebody in day three to pay attention to. So I definitely wanted to give him his kind of credence out there just because he shows a lot of excellent body control, things like that. And uh, Jeff Thomas, kid from Miami. Now, I've talked a little bit about Jeff Thomas. I wrote about him for Big Blue View. He is an exceptional athlete, a very, very explosive player. You get the ball in his hands. He's a yak kind of guy, yards after the catch. Now, he only had like 31 catches this year or something like that, so his production was down in Miami's offense. But he's somebody that can really assist in special teams and kind of come in and, and play well when it comes to being a gadget player for Jason Garrett. So I kind of like that call, too. Yeah, I mean, just just think about how many names we just ripped off of players we like, Nick. And we didn't even mention Jordan Reed's day three target at any position that he likes more than, that he said he likes, one of his three guys he likes more than any other player. That's Isaiah Hodgkins, Hodgkins, the, the six foot four receiver at Oregon State. We didn't even mention Colin Johnson, who might fall on draft boards, another big body six six receiver who's pretty damn awesome. How about Lynn Bowden, who could be the next Randall Cobb? I love this kid. Obviously, he played quarterback, but he also played receiver at Kentucky, and he's just so electric with the football in his hands. This is just an insane draft class at the wide receiver position. Absolutely insane. And for that reason, honestly, Nick, I'm fair. I'm pretty much just okay saying if the Giants go receiver at 36. They fuck this thing up, and I don't. I don't like to use that language. Excuse my language, but they screwed it up if they go third receiver at 36 because there's going to be values at 99. There's going to be values at the pick after that. There's going to be values in every single round of this draft besides 36. You just don't. You don't need a receiver at 36 by any means, and you're pay, bypassing value by doing so. So. With, the, with how deep this receiver class is, Nick, I'm really excited, and I really hope the Giants land one of these players on day three. Yeah, definitely on day three. And, you know, Mother Schneier's not going to like that uh, that language there, Dan. Definitely <laughs> not. She's an avid listener of this podcast. And, you know, recently she did tell me she fell off a little bit. She's still downloading, but she fell off a little bit during draft season, which I totally understand. As long as she's downloading. <laughs> if she's hitting that download button, she's going to get the okay from me. But, Nick, I want to touch on with you a question about uh, a prospect who we didn't get a chance to, to touch on, but Jordan Reed wanted to dive into. And I wanted to know if you've had a chance to look at his game tape. What do you think of him? And that's off-ball linebacker, edge guy, actually. I'm sorry, Josh Uche. What do you make of Uche? Yeah, Senior Bowl podcast. I talked a little bit about Uche's explosiveness and his flexibility and how he kind of made a name for himself down at Mobile. And he's somebody that a lot of people at the end of Mobile were talking about possibly day one. Now, I thought at the time it was a little rich, but the edge class isn't exactly the strength of this draft class. I was like, maybe he'll get pushed up. Now you don't hear as much from him. I think he had a solid combine, if I remember correctly, but it wasn't like anything spectacular like some of the other people kind of expected him to have, if I'm not mistaken. But I like what I've seen from his game film. He he gave Tristan Wirfs a lot of uh, problems in their yep. game. He was kind of, a, you know, he varies his pass rushing up and he has inside counters, has inside spin, can go inside, can hit you with an outside jab, but go back inside really quickly because his suddenness and his quickness are exceptional. And that's what you like. Now, a lot of people kind of labeling him as a tweener, but down at the Senior Bowl, and these are just drills in the Senior Bowl, but I do think you can kind of take information from them. He was being put out on the boundary sometimes covering running backs way out uh, past the numbers and he was doing an exceptional job at it not something he necessarily did a lot at Michigan but something kind of showcases that's what the senior bowl is about showcasing these guys outside of the things that they've done 
in the past. And he was able to do that. And that suggests that, hey, this guy's athleticism isn't just in the suddenness and the quickness. It's also in space. He has the foot speed and the mobility and the flexibility to kind of move in space. It translates to that. And that's something that I look at and I'm like, that's an interesting player for the Giants because the Giants need these kind of edge type of prospects, these players who can come in and maybe even fill multiple roles. We talked about Zach Bond, who can also do that. And obviously, I have a much higher grade than Zach Bond. Josh Uche is about 6'1", 240 pounds. So if he can come in and do that, I think I would be okay with it. But I'm honestly, if I'm going to be real, and I like Uche, I don't really necessarily want him at 36. He's somebody else I would want a little bit after that. I think there's going to be a lot more value on the board at 36. But some team might value him as that kind of interchangeable, versatile piece at the second level of the defense who can play the edge too. Yeah, honestly, that's a great point. The versatility there, if they could see a potential future at off-ball linebacker in a different roles, that might move him back up the draft board. 6'1", 245, nothing spectacular to combine, but the production was certainly there. And he's kind of like Burgess in the sense that he started 9 out of 12 games this past season, but didn't start any his previous year. He's just like Burgess, kind of came on in his final year before entering the draft. And it was his first season with double-digit tackles for loss. He had 11.5 tackles for loss, 8.5 sacks. Pretty good numbers. He was named the Defense Player of the Year for Michigan. Uh, second team, all Big Ten. Big Ten. So really the production's there. And if they can see that kind of versatile role for Uche, you're right. Maybe he would be a fit for the Giants. Something to keep an eye on. All right, Nick, that's all the questions we have remaining in the pot, in the, in the mailbag for today. Um, obviously, we appreciate everybody's continued support of the podcast. Thank you again for listening, making sure you download, rate, review us on iTunes. That's all we'll ever ask, as I always say. Um, stay safe out there. And get ready because we've got a lot more draft content coming. Uh, this weekend, we're going to have another interview podcast with Ryan Wilson from CBS Sports, one of my colleagues and a good friend of mine. Really, really strong draft analyst who's been working his ass off these past six, eight months. When I first joined the company in August, he was already breaking down draft prospects. Obviously, that's the process all these guys do. But just to hear it from him back then and to see it now, it's awesome stuff. So I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Thanks again, everybody, and have a great rest of your week. 